0: Ephesians 4, verses 25, I'm actually going to go into chapter 5, verse 2 verses. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his perfect word. I grew up in a predominantly male household. I and my four brothers lived together in a single bedroom. Now if you had brothers or have sons, you know what that environment was like. Boys have a particular brand of humor. We often poked fun at each other's physical appearance, or our choice of clothing. We turn everything into a competition, and sometimes those competitions devolve into heated arguments, or even impromptu wrestling matches. After the argument or wrestling match is over, typically we would just move on, back to being brothers and friends, again like nothing had happened. After graduating from high school I went to college where I reduced the number of my roommates from four to one still being a male roommate I find the dynamics of living with my college roommate to be much the same as living with my brothers our room was just less crowded and then two weeks after graduating college I got married I was now living with a wonderful and mysterious creature known as a woman. And it was different. No longer were the jokes about her physical appearance or outfit choices appreciated. Competition, especially in the form of argumentation, became a lot less fun. Apparently, it matters to women not just what you say, but how you say it. Who knew? The contrast between the environment I grew up in and this new environment of living with and being married to a woman could not have been more profound. I suspect many of us have those kinds of stories in our lives as well. Things or moments that were so significant they completely changed the way we think and feel and often what we do. And if we if you have a dramatic spiritual testimony You were converted as an adult or after a series of rebellious years. You may feel that way about the gospel. Maybe you were born, or perhaps over time, the magnitude of that event has dwindled in your mind. Maybe you were born into and raised in a Christian home, and you've never thought of your faith as all that radical. Regardless of how you came to faith, however, If you feel that way, Paul thinks you're missing out. Ephesians is a book written to a church, a specific church, a body of believers. And it's written for us, for you and for me. He covers a lot of ground in this book, and it has a lot of familiar passages. If you've never read straight through, or if it's been a long time, maybe that would be a good activity for your Sunday afternoon. In chapter 4, Paul focuses on the topic of unity within the body of Christ. Again, with that church in Ephesus, and among all who believe. The framework he uses for this topic, the way he organizes this discussion, is through a series of contrasts that begin before we started in our reading this morning. In verse 14 of Ephesians, he describes what we were. We were children tossed to and fro by the waves, And carried around about every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes that's what leads to this morning's text starting in verse 25 and what being part of the body of christ has made us to be in those earlier verses like 16 through 19 he describes the old life you must no longer walk as the gentiles do and the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But as we become part of Christ's body, this old life gives away to new life. Verses 22 and 24, to put off your old self and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now that's quite a contrast. It's even greater than the contrast of me going from living with males to living with my wife. And it makes sense that this contrast would be so drastic because of the change that occurred. The pivot point of this change, perhaps the linchpin of Paul's whole argument in Ephesians, is in verses 20 and 21. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth about Christ, the truth which is in him, that is what changes everything. The old self was very real, very powerful. We feel that old self working in us and against us at times still But the new self, what we are made to be as a part of the body of Christ, comes from an even more powerful source, the truth of God in Christ. That is why there is no other way this would be possible. Paul can continue in chapter 5 by saying, therefore be imitators of God. How in the world can we do that? Because, as he continues, we are beloved children. We can walk in love because he first loved us. We can put away the old self and put on the new self, not by the power of our love, but by the power of God's love. This is how we follow Christ. We can do this by the example of Christ and in the power of his spirit. Okay, well that's well and good and easy enough to believe. But one thing about what Paul says here really jumps out at me. Notice that the primary way Paul says our new life will be visible is not through our behavior towards God, but by our behavior towards one another. This new self doesn't just cause us to love God, it causes us to love one another. And I think we all know how difficult that can be. Paul has two specific changes, more contrasts that we should see in our lives, With each other as the old self is put to death. Each repeats several times in different ways in this morning's passage. The first is that truth will replace falsehood. This truth prevails in what we say and in what we do. In word is found in verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We speak truth and love truth because truth is taught to us by God And revealed to us in Christ why would we make time in our service this morning for this sermon because God has revealed the truth to us in Christ why would we make time in our Sunday afternoon to read the book of Ephesians because God has revealed the truth to us in Christ this knowledge of the truth fosters love for the truth when we love truth, we speak truth, and we put away falsehoods. Think about how many times, how many lies people accept, and even expect to be told every single day. In the South, especially, little white lies are considered an art form. But to God, they're falsehood, and our new selves should put them away. We're to speak the truth with our brothers and sisters in Christ. After all, we are members of one body, And Christ is at the head. Some of you went on the lead with character trip recently, or you have in the past, and you know boys' lesson number one. What is boys' lesson number one? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. That's even expanded helpfully to tell the truth truthfully. Covering those times when our words might be true, but, when practicing, but we are practicing falsehood nonetheless. The body of which we are all part by faith has as its head Christ, the truth of God. In John, we heard that Jesus was the light that had come into the world. And in that light, there is not any darkness. No. When we who are part of Christ's body dabble or deal in falsehoods, we are attempting to diminish the light of Christ. We're harming the body, his body. With one another, brothers and sisters, we must put away falsehood, and we must speak truth. (laughs) The commitment to truth indeed is found in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul's exhortation is that we do honest work. A thief is really defined by his work, isn't it? That's why we give him the title, Thief. That Paul would use this example also makes a lot of sense, if you consider what thieves are actually doing. They are enriching themselves at the expense of others. That's not a very one-body way of thinking, is it? The underlying sins of stealing are connected both to God and to others to God because the thief does not trust God to provide by honest means. To one another by the selfishness that justifies my taking something that is rightfully yours. And there are lots of ways to steal, big and small. We steal by cheating on our timesheets at work or on the IRS worksheets come tax time. We steal by overusing what we're offered or by undergiving what we said we would deliver. We steal by taking, we steal by failing to provide, and we steal by laziness. The new self does honest work because our commitment to truth is not just in word, but also in deed. Stealing is based on lies and not truth. It is based on selfishness and not love for the people of God. Paul says that the reward for honest work isn't just provision for ourselves, but also that we may have something to share with anyone in need. The second major change that the new self enables is that we put on building up and take off tearing down. Now, tearing down probably needs a little more explanation, but Paul gives several examples in this passage. Verse 26, do not sin in anger. Oh, how frequently we tear down others in our anger. We speak cruelly. We withhold forgiveness and love. We try to separate from the body what Christ has brought together. And verse 29 says, that no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. We're probably all familiar with that phrase, but have we given much thought to the consequences of our corrupting talk? Corrupting talk is any talk that corrupts the speaker, the hearer, and the subject. It's talk that isn't true, or is true, but isn't helpful or profitable. It's crude talk. It may be words of anger, or look at all the synonyms he uses to make sure we get the picture. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. These cover both the what and the why of corrupting talk. It's not just don't do them, but also don't be motivated by the feelings that make you want to do them. Our words are powerful, especially within our closest relationships. Within the body of Christ, we must put away this kind of talk. Instead of corrupting, our talk should build up. Paul gives several examples here as well. Verse 26, practice quick repentance and forgiveness. Now, this is not a rigid rule about timing. This is a gracious principle of quick forgiveness in the Christian life. If you, In your household, apologies should come fast, and forgiveness equally so. Parents, if you are not offering verbal apologies to and in front of your children for known sin... You have another sin to repent of. And similarly, forgiveness should be verbalized as well. No problem, and don't worry about it, are not biblical responses. I forgive you, is. This is the kind of speech that builds up. Instead of slandering a neighbor, verse 28, we're ready and eager to give to those in need. Verse 29, our talk builds up and fits the occasion. Instead of corrupting the speaker, the hearer, and the subject, do you see what, kind of, what this kind of talk does? It gives grace. The things we do here in worship, the preaching, prayer, and the sacraments, we call these things means of grace. Perhaps it would be helpful for you to think of them as capital M, capital G, means of grace. But the Christian life is also filled with small m, small g, means of grace. Paul says that speech that builds up is one of them. Through that kind of speech, God gives grace. To speak this way is wildly countercultural. One theologian described his own practice regarding gossip, and I bet it just sounds plain weird to us at first, and yet he describes it as the expected result of kindness. You know, that fruit of the spirit that we are focusing on this quarter? He writes, when the kind person hears a piece of malicious gossip, when someone's faults are pointed out to him, he tries, if he can at all do so in honesty, to offset these failings by pointing out the criticized individual's good qualities. Yes, it seems strange, but this is how the body of new selves lives with one another in Christ. We are tender-hearted we forgive one another, and we build each other up. I suppose that brings us back to where we started. The change between the old and new selves is radical, more extreme than any other change we've experienced. Yet despite all that, the powerful effects of this change aren't something we have to power and maintain in ourselves. How exhausting would that be? And even if we gave it everything we had, and exhausted ourselves doing it, it still wouldn't work. Because that's not how this change came about in the first place. How does Paul say we forgive one another? Verse 32, as God and Christ forgave us. How can we be imitators of God? Verse 1, as beloved children. How can we walk in love? Verse 2, as Christ loved us. The old self and the ways of the old self gave many opportunities to the devil. He loves to see that kind of stuff in us. Anger, corrupting talk, selfishness, and unforgiveness. We've all seen what it's like to live in a community like that. Whether with family, maybe an association, maybe a job. Or sadly, I bet in churches we've been a part of in the past. Paul says in verse 30 such conduct grieves the Holy Spirit. The people of God have been sealed by God for the day of redemption. He's united us to Christ and to his body, the church. And if the members of that body live indifferently or maliciously toward God and one another, we should expect the spirit to be grieved. Those are the ways of the old self. And you know what? We were all practitioners. Of the old self. All of us, maybe for a long time before God intervened and redeemed us, maybe for such a short time and so early in life that we don't even remember, but such were all of us. Our worthiness for attachment to the body of Christ is determined only by God's good pleasure and not by anything that we brought to the table. So it makes sense, as crazy as that sounds, that God would redeem me, his enemy, his enemy. Just as crazy as the next step, be imitators of God. He says that to me and to you, be imitators of God. In our Job study, we heard Zophar ask, "How, who can find out God? And in chapter 6 of Isaiah, we heard the prophet describe God as high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. Telling you and I to imitate God seems like madness, doesn't it? It's only true if we've got Christianity backwards. If we had to imitate God in order to become beloved children, you would be absolutely right. That would be madness. But that's not how it works. We become imitators of God because he made us beloved children first. We, as another pastor put it, copy his love because he first loved us. We sacrifice because he sacrificed what we never could. Christian, God loved you and gave himself for you. And even now he loves you and is generous with you and builds you up and forgives. Therefore, be imitators of Christ. Put away the old self. Put on the new self. Love God and love one another to the glory of Christ until he comes. Amen.